Continuing our way through the book of Mark this morning, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Let me read it for us again. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. And he kept him safe. And he heard him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, For the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asking and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And he immediately, the king, sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality of your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true and faithful. We thank you, Lord, you not only give us the psalms to sing and poetry and theme and verse, to have high emotion in your truth. You not only give us the prophets to proclaim the judgment and the truth and the, the coming promises and the now fulfilled promises that you have made, thank you that you not only give us the epistles to instruct us and to teach us and to help us to know how we ought to live as the church in the truth. You also give us narrative. You give us the history and the recording of your people in the Old Testament and your son and his apostles in the new. We thank you, Father, that you do not hold back in your word, but you make clear and you make known what is true. I pray you would help us to hear the truth this morning. Lord, that we would understand both your severity and your grace in our lives. We pray that you would do this not for our sake, not for our name, not that much would be made known of us, but that your son would be made known, that his name would continue to be proclaimed, 
and many would come willing to suffer and die to live in eternity with you in grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a, uh, maybe not an odd story, but a pretty violent, clear, aggressive story. Uh, It is murder wrapped in with a Jerry Springer-style family of power and all of their personal family issues. It is one of the greatest men, by Jesus' mouth, the greatest man ever born of woman, dying at the hands of a sinful deranged, deceited, power-hungry, powerless man. And it falls right in the middle of this portion of Mark that is a very high point for the apostles. If you notice as you're reading, remember not just, we're, I didn't just wake up last week and go, hey, let's talk about John the Baptist being beheaded. That'll be fun at church. We're working our way through the book of Mark. And as we work our way, as Mark often does, he begins one story tells another in the middle, and finishes the story after. And as we looked at last week, Mark recorded the sending out of the apostles, uh, the 12 disciples, as Jesus called them to himself, in the context of what we're looking at, Jesus sent out those disciples. And if you remember, he sent them out with authority and power. He sent them out preaching the message that Christ preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. You must repent and believe in the gospel. And the apostles went out preaching the same, repent and believe the Messiah has come. Christ is here. And they did so with authority and power. If anything, this is a high point for the apostles' ministry with Jesus. Remember, they've walked with Jesus. They have taught. uh, They've been taught from Jesus. And now they are going out. They are preaching. They are proclaiming. They are casting out demons. It says they are even raising from the dead. They are healing the sick. This is a high point of ministry for the apostles. This is like things are looking good, right? We're not just following Jesus. Guys, I'm casting out demons. This is, this is amazing. We see in verse 30, the apostles return and it says they tell Jesus of everything that happened. They're excited about what's going on. They're sent out. They preach the message. They proclaim with power. They have authority. People are knowing of this. The beginning of our passage says that, that Jesus is becoming known. The spreading of the message by the apostles is becoming known. This man is amazing. It's also clear Jesus' name is being made known. Not the apost- It didn't say, and then Peter began to be made known, and James and John and Matthias. Nobody still knows who Matthias is. But it's not the apostles whose names are being proclaimed. In Jesus' name, the message is being spread by the apostles. A high point in ministry. So why throw this murderous story right in the middle of this? It's kind of an odd placing. It's because God, in love for his people, wants his people to know the truth. He does not live for us to just have high points. He lives for us to have eternity in Christ. He lived and died and rose again to proclaim that your sin, your guilt, your shame, your fear, your rebellion against God, all that you have done, all that you do, that you know is blasphemy before his name, will not keep you from him. If your hope is in Christ, all of that is covered. And not only the freedom from your own sin, 
But you are free even to live under the sinful actions of the world, because you will rise again. As Christ is risen, so we will see him face to face. Persecution does not stop the Christian. The Christian life is not one that only functions in high points, even more so the faithfulness of Christ is shown in low points. As we're reading the Gospel of Mark, I'm frequently reading Matthew and Luke and John. And as you look in Matthew and Luke, you see at the same point when Jesus talks about sending out the apostles, he doesn't go to this story in Matthew or Luke. What he proclaims to them is persecution will come. He tells them. He's sending them out, but he is making clear to them it will not be parades and roses. It will be rejection and blood. Here in the book of Mark, that is made even more bluntly with the most detailed story of the death of John the Baptist. In the middle of the high point of what's going on, Jesus, in love for his people, makes clear the Christian life is not about high points on this side of eternity. The Christian life will only be high points, only be the increasing joy of God, only be a world without sin, without suffering, without tears, with Christ. But here on earth, the disciples of Christ will know persecution, they will know pain, they will know blood, they will know anxiety and suffering under the hands of others, and they will know hope and joy in the midst of it. And that is exactly what Jesus is proclaiming here through the hand of Mark, probably from the memory of Peter and by the power of the Holy Spirit for us. And so we've looked at the context. If you're following along in your handout, Jesus called the apostles to uh, go and to proclaim the message and the apostles return. And Mark takes this interlude between that story to say, and this is what happened to John the Baptist. The text, it starts first with the fame of Christ. Verses 14 and 15 proclaim, Herod heard of it. What is it? He heard of what is going on. He heard of the proclamation that Christ is sending out disciples, that these disciples like Christ are living in the power of God to proclaim the message of Christ. And Herod's heard of it. Herod's not close by, geographically, I'm not going to show you maps and graphs, but geographically, Herod is pretty removed from Capernaum, where this is going on. But the message is out. The, the message is spreading. And Herod has heard of it. And now, just like the people reading, you probably wonder, who is this Herod? Now, they might have known this Herod is one of many Herods. Uh, if you remember as a, a Bible student, you read your New Testament and you, there is a Herod uh, that decides to kill the children of Israel under two because he's worried about a coming king. So that Herod is the first in a line of Herods. He's kind of like George Foreman. George Foreman has like 16 kids named George, Georgia, Georgie, Georgia, George, 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 George. He can't get over his own name. So Herod has a bunch of children with different women. Some of them are named Herod. Some of them are named Philip. Uh, children in that. Some of his granddaughters or nieces, Herodias. Uh, and this is a family obsessed with power. 
obsessed with holding power. When Herod died, it was spread out for uh, some of his sons to rule. And that's why you see Herod the Tetrarch, as you read in other gospels, it calls him the Tetrarch. That's a rule of four men. So this is a historical leader ruling at the time whose name is Herod. And Herod is concerned when he hears what's going on with Christ. Because as the fame of Christ is growing, there are theories, there are questions. Who is this Jesus? What is going on? Have you heard of what's going on? And so you see in the text, the questions are, is this John the Baptist? John the Baptist was murdered by Herod, as we'll get to. And so the question is, did John the Baptist raise from the dead? And now, in resurrection, he has miraculous powers. So some are questioning, is this John the Baptist? Now, if you would have been local, it would have been very clear and very easy to see this is not John the Baptist. Uh, this is his cousin, oddly enough, Jesus, whom he baptized, uh, who lived at the same time. And then he say, is this Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets, proclaimed to be the forebearer or the proclaimer of the coming Messiah? Or he says, he is a prophet like one of old. And so people have all kinds of theories, but Herod is incredibly fearful of one of them. Herod is fearful of the theory that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Because while everyone knows John the Baptist is dead, Herod is the one who put him there. In one sense. Herod is the man guilty for the death, the murder of John the Baptist. And so Herod is fearful not only do we see the fame of Christ being proclaimed, but the fear of Herod. If you look at verse 18, 16 through 18, when Herod heard that what was going on, his fear is, this is John who I killed, raised from the dead. Herod's fearful of what he did because Herod had seized John, bound him in prison. It tells us why he put him in prison. Why did, why did Herod imprison John? Because Herod had married his brother's wife. And it's interesting here, even in the biblical text, Herod's still getting called out, right? It doesn't say because, because John spoke against his wife, Herodias. No, it says for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who Herod had married. And so Herod is living in incestuous sin. Not only was this his brother's wife, it was also his brother's niece and his niece. And he is marrying her, taking him from, historically we would see that uh, they both had agreed and divorced their spouses, technically, to marry one another. And John the Baptist knows of this and proclaims this and is making it known. He is calling Herod to repentance. And Herod, like many, refuses to repent refuses to recognize his sin. Herod may be even in calling that, well, he's married now, though he already had a wife and had other issues going on, unwilling to repent and say what I've done is sin. And John continues to call him out. Scripture continues to make clear his sin. Because John had made it known. So Herod is fearful of John. Fearful because he murdered him. Herod's also fearful of his new wife, Herodias. He's fearful of her. Why did John get arrested by Herod? Not because Herod cared. Because she did. It says that she held a grudge or she had a frustration with him. And you might think like, eh, 
You know, people hold grudges. No, it says she had a grudge and a frustration. She wanted him dead. And so Herod, like many of us, maybe, adopts the philosophy, happy wife, happy life. I'll just arrest John the Baptist. He's trying to solve the present problem. Clearly, it wasn't his philosophy in his first marriage, or he wouldn't have taken his brother's wife and his niece and replaced her. But here in the moment, he fears his wife. So what does he do? He arrests a righteous man for no reason other than proclaiming the truth in righteousness. We see also that Herod lives in fear of his friends, his family, and his political associates. If you look with me further uh, at verse 20, uh, it says that he feared John. Sorry, not verse 20 yet. Down further. Uh, he feared his associates. Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So Herodias' daughter has danced, which we'll get to. And now he's in fear, not of Herodias. He's in fear of the men present. He's throwing his drunken birthday rager, and he's made a flippant statement to his great niece, who he's paraded in front of his friends vulgarly. And now... He's fearful to not do what he said because of all his associates and political friends sitting around. So now Herod is living in the fear of them. Herod also walked in the fear of John, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. Herod fears what John says. He hears what he says, and he fears it. And so what does he do? He keeps John safe. He arrests John, but he protects him. He doesn't know what will happen to him if he kills John. And he knows what John says is true, whether he responds or not. But there's an interesting thing in verse 20. It says, Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly Perplexed. Yet he heard him gladly. Herod is living in guilt and fear. He's struggling for power and authority. He is only concerned with his own pleasure. You can see that clearly from Herod's life. He is not concerned with the vows he has made in marriage. He sees his brother's wife, who's also his niece, and says, I want that. So he plots to marry her. He wants to keep her happy because she's quite his younger and probably well aware that he's an old man. He's concerned what a woman with that kind of power or desire would want. He's concerned to keep her around. And so he does what he thinks will please her. But he's also fearful of John the Baptist, concerned what it will mean if he kills him. And he likes to hear John talk. It's interesting. I don't totally get it, but I like to hear it. It makes me feel better in the moment. It's exciting. It's at very least thrilling. It's something I could talk to my friends about. Herod lives in fear and guilt and pleasure. 
Many say in the ancient world there was a, a phrase known uh, that if you had a party that was out of control and the ancient cop should have been called, you'd say, oh, you're having Herod's birthday. Because he's known for his flagrant behavior. So in the midst of this, we see a man who lives by fear. He lives by fear that he won't get what he wants. It doesn't mean he's a cowering man, right? Herod might have a, a kind of a false power. He's really just put into place by Rome and rules a very small area. His power doesn't mean much. Even as he promises her up to half his kingdom, he really doesn't have a kingdom to give. Uh, he is just a ruler under Rome. It would be like the mayor of our city saying, I promise you up to half of Menifee. It'd be like, bro, you don't own Menifee. You can promise her whatever you want, but she ain't getting my house. This is America. Well, that was Rome. And Herod didn't have a right to give her up to half the kingdom. It didn't belong to him. He was put in place by Rome. But he's speaking flippantly out of his pleasure and excitement. Herod is a man destroyed, defeated, and confused by guilt. But on all appearances of the world, he's powerful. He's got enough. It's way better to be middle management in Rome than it is to be a slave. He's doing well. He's a playboy. He just jacked his sister's wife, who's a, his niece, way younger than him. Herod's doing great in the eyes of the world. I'm sure if there was TMZ and celebrity magazines, Herod and Herodias would be all over him. People would be following their Instagram. What are they going to do today? She's so savage. She said she wanted his head on a platter. People would love it. They would eat it up. And yet, we know the truth. We look at the life of Herod. We know the truth from what is proclaimed from the text. His power, his pleasure, his lusts could not do anything. What did Herod live under? Guilt and fear. He loved to hear John and he kept him safe because for Herod, John was his little religious pet that he could bring out at parties, that he could have come preach and proclaim. You could say, isn't that interesting? Doesn't that just fascinate you? I don't totally understand either, but I just feel better when John talks. Somehow when he tells me that I'm going to go to hell because I have my brother's wife, I feel like he's good. So I'm just going to try harder, do better, and I'll be all right. That's not what John said, friend. Somehow, Herod lives his life keeping his little religious pet here to make him feel better, to be glad in his confusion, to have no clarity in what John is saying, but just be glad that John's pretty incredible to hear speak. And this is true. As we'll get to, John must have been incredible. Like I mentioned previously, Jesus said that John was the greatest man born of woman. But while Herod's living in fear, Herodias doesn't seem to be afraid. She's just savage, just ferocious. She is full of fury and anger. She wants John dead, but she doesn't have the power to do it. She can't accomplish it. She can't make it happen. But she is a woman who lives to get what she wants and to find a way to do it. 
Clearly, she, she wasn't raised, or if she was, she rejected. Proverbs 14, 1 through 2. The wisest of women builds up her house, but folly with her own hands tear it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Herodias was a deceitful, despising woman who wanted what she wanted and did whatever she had to do to get it. Historically, again, we would see Herodias goes to Herod and tells him, you need more land. You, you need to go and get this. And Herod's demise was listening to Herodias. He goes to Rome to get more land later after this uh, at her request. But another man makes it there before him. And you could say slander. You could just says speaks clearly about who Herod is when he gets there. And as Herod arrives, Herod is given nothing. His land is taken from him. The zeal and the pleasure of Herodias that she thinks is going to give her everything she wants actually ruins her household in what little bit there was. And here, her desires find a chance for fruition. She wants him dead. See, while John preaches, Herod feels like, wow, this is true. I mean, I'm not living it. Nobody's perfect, you know, but I really like to hear about it. It's just good things. I, I heard a, a child say recently, um, we were praying and there are a lot of kids there. Uh, and one of my sons, uh, who shall be named Knox, I was going to say be named nameless, but no, mm -mm, it was Knox. <laughs> and while we're praying, Knox is like playing with his hat, goofing off, doing stuff because he's four, five. I don't know how old he is. We have too many kids. So he's, he's messing around. And I hear a little girl say, I'm not even religious, but I wouldn't do that while someone was praying. <laughs> I was like, well, thank you, Herod. Uh, what is her thought? Her thought is, well, you, you don't even have to believe it to know that's dumb. Right? That's how Herod's living. Herod's living like, whoa, hold on. I'm not going to get all wrapped up in that, but it's sacred. You know, you don't mess with it. Herod's trying to cover all his bases. Herodias is different. I want him dead. He's calling me out. He's saying I shouldn't be doing this. He's saying I can't do what I want. I'm a woman of power. I already had one of my uncles give me all this power, and now I've got another. And I'm teaching my little girl to do the same. Right? She sends her little girl to flaunt herself in front of a bunch of politicians. Like this, is war this isn't human trafficking. This is child abuse. This is the training her to be a whore for power. And this is Herodias' idea of raising her. Because this is how she lives. She's not trying to cover all her bases. She's not afraid of everything like John. She wants to murder those who would tell her she does wrong. She wants to fight and kill them. She has a very different approach to hearing the truth, where Herod, still damned to hell, goes, I'll just cover all my bases. Herodias says, I'm blowing up every other base. You don't tell me what to do. So she schemes a plan. She sends her daughter. And as soon as her daughter returns and is told that she can have anything she wants, Herodias, who wants power, who wants things, who wants possessions, says, ask for John's head on a platter. 
what was in her heart comes to fruition. She has John murdered. Jesus has been very clear about the reality of this. Many of us would say uh, that we are angry with others or we live in bitterness, but we would never do such thing. But really it's the ability that restrains us or the fear of consequences. Herodias had no fear of consequences, but she had restraint. She wasn't Herod. She wasn't in power. She was an ancient feminist. Using the gift that God had given her of beauty for lust and sin and power. And teaching her daughter to do the same. And when she has offered anything, all she can think about is her vengeance for John, who has done nothing but proclaim the truth. She hates him because he's a herald of the truth. And then we have John. The contrast to the disciples. As the disciples are being sent out and their ministry is increasing, John's ministry is ending. John has already proclaimed in the Gospel of John, we see as Jesus comes onto the scene, John tells his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. This might not have been the decreasing that John had in his mind, but this is what has come about. We see again in the Gospels, there is a time where John wants assurance, John wants confidence that this is coming about. And he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, is this happening? And Jesus returns with words from the Old Testament that leopards are healed and the blind are made to see and the dead are risen, which would be clear for John. Christ has come. John is confident in what God has proclaimed. John is powerful and righteous and faithful. Unlike the apostles, John had no gifts of power to be displayed. Jesus says that John is the greatest man born of woman. The greatest man born before Christ. Of all men born, not by miraculous incarnation, Jesus says John is the greatest. And what made him the greatest? Not his shopping choices. John wore camel skin. Even in modern or ancient times, he was looked at as, why are you choosing this? You're, you're dressing like a prophet. What are you, a hipster? Just trying to look like those who are older? John's living in the wilderness. It's not his ability to identify the fine delicacies of earth. John's living off grasshoppers and honey. He's living off of what is available to him. There's not much to be impressed by John. And yet the masses of Jerusalem are flocking to him. Even the scribes and Pharisees we see in the Gospels are coming to see what is going on with this John. Why? Because the power of his words. Because his words are from God. Because John proclaimed the truth. John, as we saw in the beginning of this Gospel, was the forebearer to the Messiah. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And what is he crying? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are flocking to John, not because he's raising the dead, not because he's casting out demons, not because he has some kind of powerful ministry going on. They're running to John because he's proclaiming the truth and they know it. And when they hear it, they're baptized by John, they repent, they're perplexed but joyful, they're confused, they're angry, and they want to murder him. 
The faithfulness of John is not like the faithfulness of the apostles. John's life is faithful because of what he preaches. John is known because of what he preaches. And John is loved and hated because of what he preaches. The faithfulness of John is placed here in the middle of the glory of the apostles in, in the first high point of their ministry. And it makes clear the Christian life is not the high points of ministry. The Christian life is faithfulness to Christ always. As Jesus warns his disciples, persecution will come. As Mark beautifully puts in narrative, this isn't it, because remember John. And John's life is put as a display. Christian, think about it. Like we have looked at the truth of the text. And as we should often, the interpretation of this text is not about you, right? This text means these things happened. The point of this text is to make known the truth of who John is, what he has done. This is the only narrative about someone who's not Jesus in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's to make John known his faithfulness. It is to contrast in the truth, like Matthew and Luke do with the teaching of Jesus about persecution, to contrast. It is not about the power and the glory and the experience of the apostles, but the reality of the faithfulness of Christ and the fear that it strikes in people might get you killed. And John is a blaring picture of that in truth. And though it is not about us, it definitely applies to us. Whenever you read your Bible, you can clearly look and say, who in this text do I look like? Who in this text reflects me? As you look under application, the fame of Christ demands a response. As Christ's fame is proclaimed, there are responses. There are responses in fear like that of Herod. There are responses in fury like that of Herodias. And there are responses of faithful dependence on God, like that of John the Baptist. The fear of Herod is often reflected in our own society. People using all their power, all their pleasure to do whatever they can. Maybe you come and you hear me preach and you're perplexed because I'm just confusing. But you like to be told, maybe somewhere inside, you know you're broken and you think it's helpful for it to be clarified to you that you are broken. But you don't fully understand because you return, or maybe last night, or maybe many weeks, you just indulge yourself in all kinds of sin. You're more than happy to hear the preaching and you receive it gladly. But you go on to pursue every single pleasure of life. You find no place for repentance. You are ready to hear with your ears, but you will not proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Savior. And you will not confess like Herod. You will go on living and defending and willing to hear, but never be willing to say, I have committed adultery. I live as a drunkard. I have given my life to lust and immorality. And I need Christ's help. You live as though you can hide it, and you find yourself, like Herod, thrown between fear and guilt and gladness because you have enough to hide the guilt. 
You can throw the rager and you can find yourself wasted and trashed on the floor and not feel it. You can make yourself numb like Herod made himself numb, but you awake to reality and again John the Baptist is at your door saying you need to repent. And rather than hear it as grace and freedom to repent, you keep your religious pet in your pocket. You hide your sin. You refuse to agree with John. You refuse to run to the truth of the gospel and say, you are right. I took my brother's wife and I need your help, John. How do I fix this? You refuse to run to Christ and say, I am a drunkard and I am a liar. I'm a cheat and a thief and an adulterer, and I need help. Like Herod, you're happy to keep a little religious pet, but you won't embrace the Savior. Or maybe you're ready to punch me. Maybe like others, you you hate me right now because I'm saying what sin is. You don't hear me as a man saying, I must repent. You don't hear me as a man saying, my life was plagued by lust and pleasure and power. My life was obsessed with getting everything I wanted out of any situation, hearing the gospel again and again and again and receiving it gladly in my ears, but hiding the sin in my heart. Who ran to repent because of the grace of Christ, because of the faithful man who preached. Maybe you hear it as that, but you don't care. You just want your sin. And so you will fight tooth and nail. You will argue against biology and everything else to keep what you want. You'll say, it's okay for me to be angry at these people. It's okay for me to hate them. They are evil. And you ignore that Jesus says, love your enemies. Proclaim truth to all. You live in fury and anger, and arrogance, and self-righteous. You spend your time not on your knees before the Creator, but on your phone proclaiming the foolishness of everyone else, crying out against your neighbors, whom you don't know, but you assume they are evil sinners. There are many who live not in the fear of Herod, but the fury of Herodias. And Jesus says there will not be many the few who will live faithful but like John. The contrast of John is amazing because in the same point where Jesus says that John is the greatest man born on earth, he says, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He says there has never been a man born like John. Never a man more faithful, right? I used to teach junior high and mothers would come and they would say, he has a good heart. I remember my own dear mother saying about me often, he has a good heart. Nah, you heard John, nah, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and evilly wicked who can understand it. I said, mom, mother, you're deceived. Your son's heart is not good. The heart is wicked. They're not born with a good heart. They're born evil. They're born wicked. They're born sinners, obsessed with their own pleasure, willing to scream and cry and claw and poop their pants until they get it. They have no self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit. They're needy. They're cute. You love them. 
and they grow up to display who they are, a son of Adam who needs redemption. Junior high moms would come into my room, they would sit at my desk, be talking to them about, you could say antics or you could say blatant sinful hatred for others in my classroom. And they would say, but he has a good heart. I was only 22 at the time. I shouldn't probably have been teaching junior high. No, 24, 25. And I would say, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that you're wrong about your son. (laughs) You don't say that to a mom, (laughs) just for future reference. Unless you want to be treated like John the Baptist and Herodias. (laughs) But among men, those who are deceived, those who look at their own children and say, no, they're good and they're righteous. Imagine being the mother of John the Baptist. Jesus said he's the best. But Jesus says the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he. Who is the least in the kingdom of God? What does Jesus mean when he says John is the greatest born of woman, but the least in the kingdom of God will be greater than he? He says John preaches in a way that condemns everyone. And no one looks at John's life and says, who do you think that you are? They look at John and they go, you're righteous and a holy man. I can but be condemned. And I'm glad to hear it from you, John. They can't accuse him. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is above reproach. And he is in sin. He is a sinner condemned to hell. Because when John is saved and goes to eternity, Jesus does not say, and John reigns over all of you because of his perfection. He says, the least of the kingdom of heaven. The one who James says makes it in by fire. The one who their friends are pleading with him to say, repent and run to the gospel. Flee. Hear the truth. Repent of your sin. Put your hope in Christ. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will change you. His spirit will destroy the sin in your life. You will be sanctified. And at one day you will be greater than John the Baptist. Even if you're the least in the kingdom of heaven, you'll be free from sin, free from rebellion, free from confusion, free from fear, free from fury. You will be his. And your life, like John's, is not about this world. The greatest man born of woman outside of Christ died because of some slum lord's birthday party with his head cut off and handed to a whore on a platter. And you think, how could that be? Because John faithfully proclaimed the truth. And even in his death, it declares there is a greater hope than what you wear and what you eat and where you live. Because the greatest man born of women, who needed a savior, who said to his face, I must increase, you must decrease. I'm not worthy to baptize you. John knew he was a sinner. What made him great was he lived in dependent faithfulness on God, awaiting the Messiah, dependent upon Christ, crying out to him, are you the one? Let me know. 
And who knows the emotional state of John when he died. But I assume, like many who came after him, he died awaiting what was coming. He died rejoicing, knowing my suffering is over. This is not my life. I want to encourage you, Christian. I know your hope is in Christ. And Satan will try to deceive you to tell you you are just like Herod. Don't be like him. Repent. Live by faith. Embrace what Christ has called you to. Depend on Christ. The way to not live like Herod is not to turn your life around, not to make yourself a little bit better. That's what Herod was trying to do. It is to fully depend on Christ. Maybe Satan will try to deceive you. Maybe the lies of the world will say, will you just live by fear and anger and frustration? Maybe they just live to condemn you. Trust Christ. Hear what he says. Know that persecution will come. Know that there will be slander. And as we're told in Peter, let your righteous deeds be so that in the day of visitation, when Christ returns, his name will be proclaimed. Because they might see your righteous deeds and turn to Christ. Don't respond in sin. Don't believe his lies. Don't believe that anger and fury is the only way to get satisfaction on earth or forever. Don't live like Herodias. Repent. Believe the gospel. Live for Christ. I, I don't want to tell you, live like John the Baptist, because uh, I don't know where you'll find camel hair. You could buy grasshoppers at the pet store, but I don't think you should eat them. But I do want you to live like John the Baptist in one way. Search to know who the Messiah is. It is Jesus. Confirm from the Word of God, just like was confirmed for John. The dead were raised. The blind were made to see. The lepers were healed because Christ the Messiah has come. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Run to Christ. He will not disappoint because he has died to make you righteous. The Word of God says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and run to him. And he changes Herodias's into greater than John the Baptist for all eternity. Let's pray that we would remain faithful to do so, that others could look at our lives, and though we know we are sinners, they could not condemn us, but only cry out with us to the Savior or cry out against us because of their fear or their fury. Let us pray that we would be those who know Christ in such a way that the world around us recognizes the humility and the fear of God, not the fear of man, that comes to those who are his. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Lord, that as you promised, you would send one crying out in the wilderness, you sent John. I pray, Father, as, as we are those who might make plans of grandeur and glory, that, that if we were planning the return of Christ, we might have planned a big Disneyland parade for him to arrive. And you sent out what the world saw as a crazy man. And you gave that crazy man words that made Jerusalem stop in their tracks and say, do we need to repent? And it was made clear for them. I pray you would make it clear for us. I thank you, Father, beyond the clarity of the apostles and beyond the clarity of John at the time that we now look back as they did at the resurrection of your son 
that you've made clear that it is not just repentance, not just recognition of our sin that cleanses us. It is not just that we are broken and need to look at it and sing that we are broken and beautiful, but we are broken and needy of your Son, and you have made the payment in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live as those who depend in the promise. Thank you that you have shown mercy and grace. I pray, Father, as we remember that in communion, that you would work in the hearts of your people, that we would rejoice in those things no matter our circumstance. If there are hearts that are not yours, I pray by your spirit you would transform them. I pray you would help us to be those who proclaim the truth like John and trust that you work mightily even if we lose our heads. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.